We've often wondered what happens with the investigations we featured on the podcast, and we're sure you have too. Does the reporting continue, leading journalists to new threads to unravel? Do the investigations result in policy changes? What happens to the people behind the stories? We decided to find out. On this week's episode, Abby Ivory Ganya returns to three investigations we featured in the past. First, we'll check in with Brian Rosenthal. When he was at the Houston Chronicle, Brian found that tens of thousands of students who needed special education weren't receiving it. Because of his reporting, Texas has started the long process of fixing systemic problems. Ultimately, what we want, what the journalists who worked on this project want is for all kids with disabilities to receive the special ed services they need. At Reveal, from the Center for Investigative Reporting, Journalists documented the stories of the country's missing and unidentified dead. But in Kentucky, the identity of one anonymous woman, Mountain Jane Doe, remained a mystery until recently. On the day of the ceremony, we got a phone call, and it was from a local reporter in Kentucky, and he said, Mountain Jane Doe has been identified. Finally, we'll check in with the Associated Press reporters behind the 2015 investigation, Seafood from Slaves. Their original reporting helped free thousands of men, but they didn't stop there. We talked with the reporters as they finished up the tail end of their latest investigation. The problem wasn't just magically solved when these slaves were freed. In fact, they're like cockroaches. These, these companies that have been doing this for years and years and years, when you shine a bright light on them, they just run from underneath the rock and scatter in all directions and then hide somewhere else. I'm Tessa Weinberg, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. In 2004, Texas education officials started working towards a new goal, decreasing the number of kids in special education from 12% to 8.5% of total enrollment. The new policy was quietly set, and no journalist reported on the policy change because it was never publicly debated. Over the years, fewer and fewer students received the services they needed. There was no discussion anywhere. There was no records. There was no vote at the legislature, no discussion at the State Board of Education, no notification to the federal government. But more than a decade later, Brian Rosenthal, a reporter at the Houston Chronicle, got a tip. The tip was crazy. The tip was that the state of Texas had secretly, illegally, and you know, systematically harmed hundreds of thousands of kids. It's not a tip that you hear very often. Brian spent months investigating the claim that kids across Texas were being denied access to special education, trying to figure out if the state was acting illegally. The Chronicle's investigation found that Texas was violating federal law. A seven-part series looked at how the cap hurt non-English speakers and students with mental illnesses, and how some schools even push kids back in traditional classrooms. When the series published in late 2016, it made waves. It shocked a lot of people. There was a lot of skepticism in 
the journalism community about our project when it was published. There were reporters at other outlets that thought that we just had it wrong. And it's because the story was so crazy, frankly. The idea that the state was systematically, secretly, and illegally harming tens of thousands of kids with disabilities, it just seemed preposterous, so people didn't want to believe it. Within months of the story running, Texas lawmakers unanimously voted to end the arbitrary cap. A federal investigation was opened, sparked by Brian's work, and the U.S. Department of Education spent 15 months interviewing teachers, holding public forums, and visiting school districts. In January, officials confirmed that, yes, Texas did violate federal special education law. They found that 150,000 children had been affected. And so the federal government ordered the state to not only end the policy, but to come up with a corrective action plan to uh, make sure nothing like this happens again, to increase training of teachers, and to provide some compensatory services to the kids who were inappropriately denied special ed. Reviews are taking place at the district level, too. The Houston Independent School District reviewed its policies and its special ed director resigned. The state's still trying to fix the problem. Governor Greg Abbott ordered education officials to draft a plan for corrective action. And as of March, the Texas Education Agency called for more than $210 million to monitor districts and identify students who didn't receive services because of the cap. The state's education commissioner has also hired more staff and increased resources for parents. And the commissioner says there's still more changes to come. But systemic problems aren't fixed overnight. Ultimately, what we want, what the journalists who worked on this project want is for all kids with disabilities to receive the special ed services they need. And even though the cap was set over a decade ago, it took years to hit the lower enrollment target. We noted that when we were writing it in 2016, for the first time, the special ed rate had fallen to exactly 8.5% which was kind of a stunning statistic at the time that they had nailed their goal precisely. Reaching the goal took 12 years, and Brian thinks fixing the problem might take just as long. The way that schools work takes a long time to change, and it took a long time for those bad things to happen. It's probably going to take just as long for the culture to change the other way and the the practices to change so that level gets back up to where it should be. Texas may have a lower special ed rate than the national average for another decade, and there, there will be kids that don't get the services they need. There's not a lot of new data out there on how many kids are currently enrolled in special ed. Brian says the Texas Education Agency comes out with enrollment numbers every fall. But the agency has released some data that shows the numbers are moving in the right direction. The data was, was a snapshot just from a month after our series uh, was published. So it's, it's hard to say you know, what the reason for it was, but it indicated that for the first time in 10 years, the special ed rate in Texas had gone up and that thousands of more kids uh, were receiving these critical special ed services. So you know, that is the most gratifying thing for us. Soon after the investigation came out, Brian took another job as an investigative reporter at the New York Times, and he says there are some lessons from digging into special education that he uses in his job now. One thing that I 
definitely learn from that project that I think I'm going to apply for the rest of my career probably is the power of finding an issue that produces a question and just relentlessly trying to answer that question. He started with facts he knew for sure. Texas had the lowest percentage of students in special ed of any state in the country, and that number had gone down dramatically over the past decade. Our overriding question for the 10 months that we worked on the project is, why has there been this unprecedented dramatic reduction of kids in special ed? And that was the question we asked literally everybody we talked to, even people that, you know, completely disagreed with us, thought the idea that there was a cap was ridiculous. We said, okay, so what then is the explanation for why there has been this this huge drop? And every single day we were trying to answer that question. And I feel like that's a very powerful type of reporting to do, having one question that is very important and digging as deep as you can to find the answer to it. Just because he's in New York now doesn't mean he's completely removed from the investigation. Brian got to revisit the story when the Department of Education announced in January that Texas had violated special education law. I was very fortunate that uh, here at the New York Times, they thought that that was a major story and they agreed to let me write that story. So that kind of gave me some closure, quite honestly, that I was able to write the story for the New York Times confirming what we had found down in Texas and that changes were actually going to be made. That was a very gratifying experience for me. In 2015, we brought you the story of G.W. Schultz, a reporter at Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, who spent nearly eight years working on a story on the country's missing and unidentified dead. One of the stories that caught his attention was Mountain Jane Doe, a woman who was stabbed to death in 1969 and left in the woods of Harlan, Kentucky. Reveal told her story across platforms, including a documentary series. One of the interesting things about this story is that it has gone on for so long, and there have been a lot of different phases of it. That's Michael Schiller. He was the lead producer on Reveal's video and radio documentaries on Mountain Jane Doe. It became really a process that we've been in now for several years, so there have been a lot of changes during the course of this. We had no idea who this woman was, and we tracked very closely the, this process to try to figure out who she was. Back in 2014, GW and a videographer went out to Kentucky for the exhumation of Mountain Jane Doe. Here's GW in our original episode. Went out there to Harlan and filmed this entire exhumation. We didn't realize until later that, that we got a level of access we likely wouldn't get in most places around the country. But we filmed this whole thing, this attempted exhumation of a woman who was uh, first found murdered uh, with stab wounds in 1969 on a trail outside Harlan. But at the exhumation, things didn't exactly go as planned. Officials dug up the wrong body. When it was time to publish, we still didn't know who she was. 
it was a challenge from a storytelling perspective and it was a challenge from a reporting perspective, but it was actually very indicative of how most of these cases go, right? A lot of them stay unsolved. So we decided that, you know, we could go ahead and publish the story. And so we did, we aired the documentary and we kind of left it there. It was something that we were still looking at, you know, particularly the Mountain Jane Doe case, but nothing really happened for about another year after we published. GW left Reveal in 2016 to pursue a master's degree, but like so many of the stories we feature on this podcast, his work lived on. A year after the stories ran, Reveal found out the investigation earned them a nomination for a news and documentary Emmy. On the day of the ceremony, we got a phone call, and it was from a local reporter in Kentucky, and he said, Mountain Jane Doe has been identified. I'm on my way over to the Kentucky State Police, and they're going to announce the name of this woman. That was the same day that we won the Emmy for the story that we had run without even knowing who this woman was. Yeah, the timing was super weird that we won the Emmy and then she's revealed that that day. The exact same day. That second voice you just heard is Rachel DeLeon, a producer at Reveal and an associate producer on the audio documentary. So what really happened after they announced that this woman was not, her name was not Mountain Jane Doe, she always had a name, and her real name was Sanja K. Blair Adams. Now that they knew the identity of Mountain Jane Doe, there was more work to do. So once we had a name, we were able to continue our investigation, and the story really transformed from a who is it to a who done it. They knew Sonia K. Blair Adams lived in a county close to where her body had been found, and that at some point she was married. About a year before her death, she was getting a divorce. Rachel found the divorce paperwork and a deposition with Sonia K.'s ex-husband. There was a lot of details in there about what seemed like a very messy divorce and quite a complicated situation. So she shared her findings with the detective assigned to the case. He was pretty cooperative with us. I mean, this is such an old case that I think he was willing to give us updates every now and then. But when we found this divorce proceeding, I mean, that was just huge. And so we shared that with him. But it was interesting because I don't think he had considered going down that route. We still don't know exactly what led to Sonia Kay's death, but the work done by journalists at Reveal could lead to more answers. And in Tennessee, at least, a new law might help bring closure to more families. Police there are now required to enter all missing persons into a national database of Jane and John Doe cases called the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, or NamUs. The coroners and medical examiners have to enter DNA, fingerprints, and dental information for any unidentified bodies that come through their offices, too. And so by doing that, you have so much more likelihood of those two things getting connected and talking to each other, because that was what was the problem with so many of these cases is medical examiners and police in the same county, in the same city, not talking to each other about, well, I have a missing person. Oh, I have an unidentified person. Maybe they're the same. And so in Tennessee, at least, it's now the third state in the nation that requires that. So that was really cool. Experts in Reveal's documentary credit NamUs for identifying Mountain Jane Doe, but there's no federal law mandating medical examiners and police officers to use the database. Today, there are nearly 12,000 open unidentified persons cases in the database. 
Michael says Todd Matthews, the director of case management at NamUs, helped Tennessee legislators understand the importance of the database. He's also the one who called GW to come out to the exhumation in 2014 and played a major role in Reveal's coverage of the unidentified dead. He was screening our documentary for lawmakers right around the time that they were about to go in and vote on this. And it also happened just coincidentally that the Mountain Jane Doe radio story on Reveal was on the air several weeks before they were voting on this this bill in Tennessee. The other thing that I think is so remarkable is um, I have to give a huge shout out to local news because Karen, the daughter of Sanja, like she knew there was a lot of mystery around her mother. She didn't know exactly what had happened to her. The family definitely didn't really talk about it. And it was just kind of like, oh, your mother left you when you were, you know, one. She in her heart really didn't feel like that was true. And then one day she was watching a local news program. They were talking about cold case murders. And one of them was Mountain Jane Doe. And for her, I think something just kind of clicked because of the timing of when her body was found and where she was found and the description of what she looked like. For Karen, she just thought in her heart that that was her mom. And so that's when her journey started to enter her DNA into the database. And then she really got the investigators to look into this again. I mean, without her watching that broadcast, without her having the drive and the passion to just find out what happened to her mom, I mean, none of this would have happened. Michael says local reporting in Kentucky has also helped move the story forward. The number of different journalists that touched this project is staggering. Just even in our newsroom, it's more than half our newsroom had something to do with it. When you're talking about local news and all the reporters over the years from the Harlan Daily Enterprise and their news clips that we used, which really also kept this thing alive up until the local TV station, it really was a partnership between us and them and every reporter who ever touched this thing. But it's working with Sonia Kay's daughter, Karen, that stuck with Michael the most. What Karen did simply by sharing her story, was able to have impact, was able to make a difference. And so there's a chance that someone else might not have to suffer through that. And, you know, so to me, that's a testament to the power of storytelling and the importance of journalism. No matter how tough the topic is, simply documenting what happened, simply telling someone's story can change the world. story that we ever do is going to have the impact this one did. That's Robin McDowell, a reporter for the Associated Press. And a few years ago, Robin, along with AP reporters Martha Mendoza, Margie Mason, and Esther Tucson, reported on how fish in stores like Walmart and Kroger could have been caught by slaves in Southeast Asia. When we first told their story in 2015, more than 500 slaves had been freed as a result of their reporting. And today, the total is more than 2,000. In 2016, President Obama signed a law that banned the import of slave-produced goods. Then, two months later, Margie, Martha, Esther, and Robin won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. The story had other, less tangible effects, too. It used to be 
when people were talking about seafood and the problems in the industry, they were looking at environmental problems, destruction of marine life, um, ecosystems. And I think now everybody realizes when you're talking about tracking seafood and the importance of knowing where your fish comes from, that is one of the important things to consider, who's catching this fish. But Robin says they were still missing a critical piece. The one issue that we never got to address was what is the answer? And so what are consumers supposed to do? People who care about this, what are companies, countries supposed to do about this? And the reason we didn't ever do a story looking at that was because we didn't know what to say. The team began looking at sustainable, locally caught seafood. And soon their attention was drawn to a distributor named Sea to Table, which promised sustainable, local, and wild-caught fish. Seafood from the company makes its way to high-end restaurants and universities around the country. On its website, Sea to Table was regularly marketing fresh yellowfin tuna caught off the waters of Montauk, New York, even in the dead of winter when the harbors were frozen. So the reporters looked at records from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to see how many commercial tuna landings were happening there every month. There were almost no commercial landings in December, January, February, and March. And that was true not just this year, but every year going back 10, 20 years. We decided that's the obvious place to set our sights. Everybody loves tuna. Um, No matter what people say when they want sustainable, locally caught seafood, they still want tuna every day of the year. So the tuna wasn't coming from Montauk, like Sea to Table said. The next step was to figure out where it was coming from. If you're in New York and you are selling tuna, the one obvious place to go is the Fulton Fish Market because it's like the size of the Empire State Building on its side and it's just got boxes and boxes of tuna, beautiful maroon slabs being cut up, boxed, the forklifts zigzagging all over the place trying to avoid hitting each other. It's just a huge bustle of activity. Robin wanted to find fish that was destined for one of Sea to Table's major suppliers in Montauk. So she asked around at the fish market, how do wholesalers get the fish they want? Someone told her that for regular orders, the boxes would get stacked up in a certain spot and the name of the wholesaler gets scribbled across them. Then trucks come and pick them up between two and four in the morning. Sometimes these boxes would still include shipping labels showing the fish came from around the world, not Montauk. After we found the boxes and we realized, okay, this is the routine. This is where the stack always is. This is what time the trucks show up. We just kind of staked out, staked out in our truck in the parking lot. She also snapped photos of the boxes to make it easier for the team to trace them back to their original source. Once the boxes were loaded, Robin would hop in her car and follow the truck up the highway to Montauk until it reached the distributor and was unloaded. Robin went through this routine multiple times. On a few trips, Margie Mason would go with her. Margie is an AP reporter based in Jakarta, Indonesia, and she also worked on the Seafood from Slaves investigation. The truck following is my favorite part, and Margie always makes fun of me, like when she has to follow trucks in Asia and I'm not there. She'll put me on Skype and like, okay, there's the truck, you want to join us? I just love, to me, it's kind of my favorite part. A lot of these trips happened in the winter, when records showed little to no tuna was being pulled from the waters of Montauk. To gather even more proof, they worked with a photographer named Julie Jacobson. Julie used a drone and set up a camera that took a photo of the Montauk Harbor every 15 seconds. Thousands of photos offered evidence that no tuna boats were coming in during the time Sea to Table said it was providing local tuna. 
The fresh, wild-caught yellowfin that the foodie world was so excited about? Shipping labels showed some of it was actually coming from Vietnam and Trinidad and Tobago. They knew where the seafood was coming from. Now it was Margie's job to track down slaves working in international waters. We have a vast network of sources in this area. And so I was able to tap old sources and a lot of new people I was able to reach out to as well. She found that the treatment of slaves was similar to what the team found during the original Seafood from Slaves investigation. They drank rusty water, ate expired food, and some say they were beaten. Margie also had to figure out where their catch was going. So we started, you know, tracking down different fishermen who had been in different places. And that's how we started pulling at those strings. The supply chain for big distributors can be murky. If even one fish caught through slave labor enters the pool, it dirties the whole chain. After that, you can't really separate the good fish from the slave caught. The reporters were able to verify that fish caught by slaves was going to Trinidad and ultimately the Fulton Fish Market. From there, Robin would take photos of the shipping labels and follow the boxes to Montauk. And it's worth pointing out, this wasn't just one catch at one dock. In other parts of the country, the team found sea-to-table offering species that were out of season, farmed, or illegal to catch. The owner of Sea to Table told the AP his suppliers aren't allowed to send imports to customers and that any violators would be terminated. And on the domestic side, if the fish was labeled as coming from one port in the U.S. when it actually was caught in another, then it was clearly communicated to customers, he said. Some chefs denied this, and federal officials called it mislabeling. Reporter Martha Mendoza worked on the original Seafood from Slaves story, and she was part of this investigation too. She looked into legal issues and worked on verifying which fish were coming into U.S. ports and if those matched what Seated Table was listing. The team's original investigation laid the groundwork for this new reporting. Oh, we learned a lot from that story. I mean, I think we kind of feel like we have it down now. We understand things that we didn't understand at that time, because when we did the Seafood from Slaves story, that was really... I mean, we'd written about fish before, but that was really when we came to understand how murky the whole system was. We took the tools that we learned the first time around and tried to add to them with changes in technology or or platforms that we weren't familiar with the first time around and built on what we'd learned. The reporting is a blend of old and new investigative techniques. Some of their work was relatively simple fact-checking to see if tuna were actually being caught during the winter in Montauk, but they also used drone footage and ship-tracking tools to watch seafood travel around the world. We love that. I mean, I think that's kind of our MO at this point. We try to use the same combination of kind of gumshoe reporting and using the technology that's out there and, you know, new ways to use it. There's new ways to use things that are already out there to prove your case you know, or help them prove your case. I talked to Margie and Robin while they were still in the final stages of the seat to table investigation, so we don't yet know what its impact will be. But Robin says they tried to offer the same comprehensive look at the system that Seafood from Slaves provided. All these people are in, are in this business. They understand this business, and 
if they're in the market of selling sustainable locally caught fish, you know, you would you would hope that they would be more informed about about what fish was in season, where it was coming from, what was available, what wasn't available. I think I think people just don't want to know. They close their eyes to it. It makes it a lot harder to blame anyone. You know, and, and I would say the same thing was true with seafood from slaves. We had the same issue when it comes to Walmart or Friskies or Cisco. Um, they had heard for years about slavery and abuses at sea in the Thai seafood industry, but they chose to close their eyes to it. They chose to say like, oh, just show us the evidence and then we will do something. They wanted a dot to dot. So I hope that's what we're doing here as well. We're giving a dot to dot so that people who have chosen to be ignorant or really just didn't know what was going on can, can you know, now put their foot down. It's easy to focus on the direct impact of the AP's reporting. More than 2,000 men have been freed from slave labor, but the reporters also recognize that they didn't solve the problem. There are still people around the world facing the same kind of abuse. Here's Margie again. This was just not one place or one country, and the problem wasn't just magically solved when these slaves were freed. Um, in fact, you know, they're like cockroaches. These, these companies that have been doing this for years and years and years, when you shine a bright light on them, they just run from underneath the rock and scatter in all directions and then hide somewhere else. And, you know, that's what we've seen happening. After Seafood from Slaves was published, companies and consumers couldn't say they didn't know what was happening in Southeast Asia anymore. Robin says it made people think about how the fish got to their plate. That is more than most stories do. Most of the time a story is written and it's forgotten the next day. You know, like, I don't think anyone's going to forget this story. Um... And I think it has now become like slavery in, in seafood anyway, but I would think in other products as well. That's just, a, that's just like for a reporter, a goldmine. There's endless amount of digging that needs to be done there. And this story kind of showed, I, I think it showed that there are ways to make it, make it be not just something horrible that's happening on the other side of the world. Like if you bring it back home somehow, People are going to have to think about it. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to the featured investigations and our original podcast episodes. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org slash podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Abby Ivory Ganya reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Tessa Weinberg. Podcast. Podcast.